Mussolini started out a socialist, an ardent, vociferous socialist. Like many of his fin de siècle contemporaries, he saw history and politics in Marxist terms as a struggle between the ownership class and the great majority of working people. But right around the start of World War I, there was a kind of schism in socialism. Nietzsche was in the air, the idea of the ubermensch in marked contrast with the idea that only worker solidarity could bring forth mankind's true promise. And as the great powers lined up against each other in 1914, it wasn't exactly clear what the workers of the world were supposed to unite either for or against. Pacifism? Not monarchism, surely, but not capitalist imperialism either. Egalitarianism and class struggle didn't really acquit with the hot-blooded feelings of the man on the street anymore. Suddenly it felt like country came first, and countrymen even more. If Italians were going to war with Austro-Hungary, yes, it would be to destroy the Habsburgs, not for some abstract global workers' paradise, but for Italy. Mussolini invented fascism, at least in the modern sense, entirely on the fly, out of shards. His insight was to upend the dialectic of class struggle, to unite Italians rich and poor in a shared sense of cultural and racial chauvinism. It was not only workers who could form the revolutionary vanguard, but any patriotic Italian. Violence and domination were natural human conditions, necessary prophylactics against rot and decadence. And Mussolini institutionalized them as part of a new social order of conformism, xenophobia, moral indignation, expansionism, and autocracy, backed up with a healthy dose of social Darwinism. The working people flocked to it in droves. We throw the word around willy-nilly now at targets both deserving and comically undeserving, but fascism is a form of governance born out of a specific moment in time and place, Italy, in the aftermath of World War I, at the hand of journalist and professor Benito Mussolini. The problem, of course, is that the object of fascism is for the nation to be aggressively at war, conquering nations and expanding its influence, and post-war Italy was simply industrially and socially incapable of building and maintaining a war machine. So anyway, they lost pretty much all the battles and then they lost the war. Now, we've already watched films influenced by Italian neorealism, but these are the headwaters. We've watched films that depict the destruction of World War II, but Paisan was shot in real rubble almost immediately after the surrender of Germany's forces in Italy in the spring of 45. These aren't sets, there are still bullets on the ground. The film is a series of vignettes set after the Allied invasion of Sicily in the summer of 43, generally following the American military as it moves up from Sicily through Naples, Rome, Florence, and out to the Po Delta. Newsreel footage and maps provide some context, but primarily we follow along as American GIs interact with civilians, Italians of various allegiance, the clergy, men, women, and children. One chapter centers on a black soldier's relationship with a street urchin, while elsewhere an American nurse runs around Florence under fire searching for her boyfriend. The short chapters dramatically illustrate the impact that fascist rule, war, and liberation had on the people on the ground, and the neo-realist style never calls attention to its own techniques, lending a documentary feel. It's a collection of little parables about war and its aftermath, and while it's not one of those classics of cinema that really holds up in a modern context, it plays an important role in the history of film. Its lack of heavy-handedness directly inspired the cinematic style of previous friendly fire showing the Battle of Algiers, and it is a favorite film of Martin Scorsese's. It defies easy categorization, and it was totally unlike any film that came before it. 
keep your head down while you're moving between the reeds. Today on Friendly Fire, Paisan. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, where we start telling an awful lot of stories, but rarely finish them in a satisfying way. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. <laughs> John, you watched this movie in a very compromised way, because you watched it entirely without subtitles. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it compromised. I mean, I, I watched it without subtitles, I think, because I don't understand how the internet works or computers or streaming or something uh but i but it, i didn't care it didn't matter there were portions i mean i don't speak italian but it is a romance language and i have familiarity with uh, yeah. romance languages and so with a little bit of french spanish italian latin and romanian i was able to like bumble along you could you could put it together with context clues but also the the film is I mean, a lot of the vignettes, uh, the characters don't understand one another. The American soldiers right. are, are, aren't able to understand Italian either, and the Italians aren't able to understand English, and so that's a theme throughout the film, and so I just kind of was burbling along, and, and I wasn't 100% sure whether this wasn't how it was meant to be watched. Like, oh, this is Rossellini's, like... Uh, spoof on us if you're Italian you watch it one way and if you're American you watch it another way and like there there were certainly parts in the film where I was like what is going on but by the end of every set piece every episode it's it's pretty clear what was going on all along it's it's kind of like being in a foreign country where people are talking and you're you're conducting your business and you have no idea what's really being said there are a couple of documentaries by Oliver Stone where he went to Cuba and interviewed Castro. Like they walk around the streets of Havana together and there's an interpreter there because Oliver Stone doesn't speak Spanish. But they made this weird decision where you get the interpreter translating, but then you also get subtitles. And it's like insanely distracting because the English in the subtitles does not tend to agree that much with the interpreter <laughs> <laughs> and so the version of this film that i watched and i think adam watched had closed captions for both the english and the italian and the german oh and it was always on and the english like the english closed captions were bad and wrong a lot of the time like when when they talk about like i don't want to eat any c rations they write out sea rations <laughs> And it's like clearly this person doesn't know what a C ration is that is that is writing these closed captions. <laughs> there was another one where I think it was like somebody said like cease operations and it wrote they wrote out seesaw something. Mm-hmm. Seesaw operations. Yeah, like I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about you, Ben, but like, like when I, when it started to become clear that the captions were not something that I wanted to follow, you know, I would I would look up, I would look at the actors, but what greeted me there was not the relief of good acting or <laughs> or like articulated thoughts that were easy to understand like there's a it's it's a very like mumblecore 
neo-realism <laughs> film. And, and it was hard to understand on that level. It's considered one of the masterpieces of, of neorealism, which is, you know, I've, I've read about this movie a couple of times. It's, I think it's the second in Rossellini's war trilogy and held up as like one of his greatest achievements. And yeah, the acting is super wooden and weird. It's not an era that is known for its acting. It inspired another neorealism film that we had already talked about, which was Battle of Algiers. I think it may just be that I don't like like neorealism films, because I don't hmm. remember liking that film either. Hot take from Adam Pranica. Yeah, right. I, the, uh, whatever the neo refers to in front of neorealism, uh, this definitely, probably when it came out, it was remarkable that there was somebody on screen in a film that w- wasn't half turned to the camera going, darling. Right, right. <laughs> that they took real Italian people and had them just sort of milling around, uh, all talking to each other and all visibly trying as hard as they can not to look at the giant camera that's suddenly in the right. church or whatever. And so that awkwardness may be read to a contemporary audience as real, whereas to us it's just like, she is so conscious of that camera being six inches from her face. Like the, the lead actress in the, in the first episode, my understanding was that she could n- neither read nor write, had never acted before. True. was just someone that they found when they came into the village and they were like, you, you there, you there. What day is it? Why it's Christmas day. <laughs> and they put her in front of the camera and they were like, you know, here's your motivation. I was like, oh, please let this poor girl alone. <laughs> Why are you forcing her to do this crazy acting thing? Like it's, it's, she's, you know, like she's visibly uncomfortable. The genre, like, I don't know why Rossellini handicapped his film by turning it into vignettes, because if you're going to go neorealism, like I at least want to spend enough time with the characters to care about them. But these vignettes were so short that by the time I got to really understand what the conflict was or what the relationships were between people, we were on to the next. And it, and it really, like, from vignette to vignette, I felt like, well, okay. It's It was a lot like seeing uh, improv in that, like, well, that sketch didn't work, but maybe the next one will. And it just kept me hoping that something would work for me uh, in the next episode. And I, I mean, I keep talking about not liking this movie, but... But it didn't work for me on that level either. So there are five episodes. And There's six. Right. Well, I don't count the last one because it was so terrible. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I, I would have said I, I don't count the fifth one because it's just a Protestant, a Jew, and a Catholic walk into a monastery. <laughs> right. Six episodes. So the first one is in Sicily, which was where the... You know, the invasion began and then then they're in Naples and then it's in Rome and then it's in Florence and then it's at this monastery that's in a indeterminable place. And then at the end, they're up um, by Venice on the Po River Delta, which is, you know, the far north eastern side of Italy. So we're kind of marching up Italy as the army, the invading army is marching up Italy. And that that lack of center or that um, that you know kind of you get to know somebody and then it's just clipped and and you're you meet somebody else. I I thought maybe it was it was kind of a way of engaging us in what it must have been like to 
be in in a situation like this where you know that the second episode where these two people met just a few months prior and in that short amount of time become unrecognizable to one another because of how much the war has changed them just in a couple of months you're talking about fred and francesca fred and francesca the whole setup of that is just like oh you know every everyone in rome is ruined by the, i mean it's not they weren't ruined by the war they were ruined by the liberation yeah i spent a lot of time trying to write my little jokey show intro about the idea that we were once young and full of hope and now we're just like dejected prostitutes but i couldn't figure out a way to make it not seem super offensive you couldn't get the tone (laughs) quite right yeah yeah i couldn't i couldn't nail the tone i think that was my favorite of the episodes though this one that you're you're talking about between the two lovers but it's the one that that ends the most unsatisfyingly i mean but it's an ending that made me feel something though in a way that the other ones didn't and 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 at least that moved the needle Boy, the I, the first episode's ending, like, just thinking about, like, the idea that the Americans came back and were convinced that she had killed their their comrade, I thought that was a, a kind of an amazing ending, because it, it, like, almost all of the work of, of understanding, like, what that means is done by the viewer. Like, the film just gives you, like, a couple of very you know, very gestural pieces of information. And then you, you realize like how, how confusing and tragic war is in, in the kind of digesting it and seeing, seeing the characters see something and draw conclusions that are wrong, that you know to be wrong. But that there's no one who will ever, there, there's no way they will ever discover the truth. There's no, right. There's no reveal. They're not going to open up a, their wallet one day and and say wait a minute she was the hero like what would be in their wallet in that scenario oh like an old (laughs) picture a folded up dollar a note that says i always loved you (laughs) but what's crazy about that is that it's entirely possible that those american soldiers then marched back to her village and put 10 guys up against the wall and shot them right And, and probably that wouldn't happen like American troops at this point in time wouldn't have done that, but armies around the world do that kind of stuff all the time, like reprisal killings. But even if they didn't, even if they didn't, even if they were just like, ah, she was, she betrayed us. And then they marched on and never looked back. All the guys in that platoon would go back to America and settle down after the war. And when you said, Oh, my friend is Italian. They would go. Yeah fucking italians i know how they are you know it's like a thing that it's an event that reverberate their misunderstanding of what happened reverberates through the rest of their lives and then it becomes the kernel of a prejudice that their kids don't even know where it's from and their kids are like yeah my dad never liked sicilians (laughs) whenever we would go out for pizza he would order the salad yeah he would get a hamburger at the pizza place (laughs) but you know that's like it's it's such a, a short vignette, but it, it leaves so much of that hanging in the room that you, I, I mean, I caught myself multiple times just thinking like, that's exactly the kind of butterfly flapping its wings in China that produces, you know, if that platoon comes upon somebody else down, you know, just a mile down the road, who's like, yeah. let me help you. 
and they're and they're they get it wrong you know yeah Ugh. the fog of war gentlemen that is the fog of war why not tell that story here in 1946 was it because oh, so and mad. not enough time had passed to really see what the consequence was like other than the consequences of like economic and moral poverty that happens uh, at the end of a global war see i don't know how much credit to give uh, rosalini and my inclination is to give give him a lot everything that's left hanging here like the second episode where joe the military policeman uh, sort of drunkenly pals up with pasquale who then pascal who then steals his boots and then he goes back to the kids little hovel and says take me to your parents i want my boots back and he gets there and it's a bunch of people just eating boots basically because they're all starving <laughs> Um, this was actually really exciting for me to see because the place that uh, Pasquale lives is the uh, is the Naples Underground, which is a thing you can actually go visit now. There's like tours of this. It's it's the like ancient sewer system of the city that was built by the Greeks, and it's a really cool Airbnb. The it Greeks? was. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it's super, super old and has been used for all different things. And um, and people really did like go take refuge there during the war. I, I visited a couple of years ago and it was really it was really fun to see it like depicted in a movie. That's cool, because later on in the film, there's a there's a, a shot that happens in uh, Florence. That was also a place that I visited that I was like, oh, look at that. Isn't that cool? look at that look at at that what do you know about them apples that vignette was a little bit on the nose you know he gets back there and he's like oh keep the boots kid let me out of here you guys are you guys are way worse off than i am oh this is why you steal yeah uh but it's you know it's not um maybe as sophisticated a story or it wraps up too neatly yeah but that's this that's the vignette that gave us all the best scenes of city life in Rome. Um I mean just looking at the costumes on the kids which I presume were just their regular clothes because these kids were just grabbed off the street and pressed into service. And all the like Neapolitan men walking around in their Neapolitan suits. Oh, oh man. Does that mean uh chocolate pants, vanilla shirt, strawberry jacket? Is that is that what that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that is, Adam. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that's a reference to. Are those rap lyrics? It's a type of ice cream, Joe. Oh, I see. I see. Um, I meant Na- I said Rome. I meant Naples. I walked away with a sense that how, how do you put this? We put so much thought into material circumstances. Now it, it it's all we think about. Um, whether or not this person has a better watch than I do or whether or not even even going as far as to say like thinking about different groups of people and what their position is in society and so forth and and when you see mm-hmm. a situation like this where society is completely demolished there is no money of any kind there are orphans and and people you know who are disabled by by war and infection is killing everybody and yet there is still a, a recognizable sort of 
cadence to the day and kids are still kids and people go about their business. I mean, in our cultural life now, we think about the apocalypse a lot. All your favorite TV shows are about zombies and all science fiction is about what happens after some cataclysm. It's a real obsession these days. It is. And and this is an this is an episode of a film where we're looking at the ruins of a city in the aftermath of an actual thing that actually happened. Right. It's, shot like one year after it actually happened. Yeah, shot in the actual rubble of the thing in the actual place. <laughs> that wasn't trucked in. And they grabbed these urchins off the street and were like, "Act." And the kids were like, <laughs> "Hey, okay, I'm acting." <laughs> uh like give me the pizza now <laughs> hey that's not a ravioli <laughs> three colors but, uh, on a suit but what do we call it <laughs> uh, i'm so dumb it just fell apart <laughs> so fast but that so that was what was resonating about that to me like the whole the whole scene with joe and the kid and the boots it all felt just like a like a un, it could have been any storyline that was walking us through this idea that desperate times call for desperate measures. But ultimately Pascal, you know, he was just happy to have Joe as a friend. You know, he, 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 he's a little kid. He wasn't thinking about the, he was happy to have shoes to eat. Pascal saw the best marionette show he's ever seen. Oh, that too. That too. That marionette. That was amazing. (laughs) It's pretty great. I like the second episode because it's the thing, it's the one that most felt like a film. Like Drunk Joe actually goes through a a hero's journey. Like he actually is affected by his circumstances by the end in a way that the other episodes uh, had fewer, if any, consequences. In the middle of that episode, Joe drunkenly is saying to his new friend Pascal... I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And then he thinks about it for a second. And he's like, I don't want to go home. Like there's nothing for me back in America. I just live in a, in a tumble down shack. Like he's thinking, he's feeling sorry for himself. He's like, I just live in some garbage hole. I don't, there's nothing in America for me. And that really informs his, the turn at the end right. where he's like, Oh shit, I thought I had it bad. And that's a very interesting, it's very interesting. He's the only African-American character in the movie and Rosalini puts him through that or puts us and him through this kind of like, oh, it's it's worse to be an Italian in Naples than it is to be an African-American in the South kind of moral equivalent equivalizing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the in 1947, that probably seemed like a pretty sophisticated cultural criticism he's also like the character that has like i guess it's between him and fred in the next episode but like the like he doesn't have as as many like emergent concerns you know he's like drunk and hanging out in the streets and not worried that a german is going to shoot him right uh like like the these two episodes are about characters that are in safe places. They're in the rear. Roughly speaking. Yeah. Joe is actually like acting in the rear and it seemed like Fred is on leave. And then at the end he packs up and heads out to an uncertain future. Fred helped liberate Rome and spent some time there just like getting drunk. And then he's heading out and, 
that this this was the episode the third episode was the one that not being able to speak italian and not having subtitles it took me the longest time to grok (laughs) what was happening because you know it starts off in a tavern and then the cops raid the tavern and and this girl had gotten into a fight with another girl and it's like is this going to be about these two girls no apparently not is it about all these girls no you know i'm like (laughs) what you could tell what they were yelling at each other about but it wasn't clear whether it was establishing a a plot that we were going to come back to. And then she's out in the street and then she just kind of picks up a sail or a soldier. And he seems like he's got initially, like there's nothing to grab onto about him. He just is just a dud, you know, she's like, come on inside. And he's like, I don't want to like, he's just nothing, <laughs> you know? And I'm, and I'm, <laughs> I'm listening and she's chattering away and I'm just like, what the fuck is this episode about? <laughs> But then we have this long flashback, the only flashback that happens in the film. And all of a sudden, like his character comes alive. Her character comes alive. Like they have this, this sort of like chaste, but tense afternoon together. Like it's not implied that they bang, but they definitely are in love with each other by the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's implied that they don't. Yeah. And I mean, and listen, I'm, I majored in Im, like implied don't bang, <laughs> but, uh, but by the end, I, you know, I, I think I had enough credits to get the minor, but I didn't, uh, I didn't actually put in for it, which was my mistake. You needed to take that yeah. one foreign language class to actually complete the minor. That's yeah. But by the end, I really felt for her and was, was really like you know the the fact that he his character had gone through this this emotional uh journey of boy when we first got here everyone was so nice and fresh and clean and now everybody sucks <laughs> like i wasn't as, I, I didn't really connect with the, with that very much but but she had you know that 6 month period had marked an entire evolution and she felt uh, of her life and she felt like Maybe this moment, maybe meeting Fred was going to be the turnaround and she could go back and and rewind and start over and they would get married and move to America. I mean, she just like and none of that's on the screen. It's just left to us to to hold. Yeah, you, you just have to do that math yourself. But that, you know, that was so uh, it really hurt, you know, to see her standing there in her in her clean dress waiting for him to arrive and he's just checking his pockets and finds her address and is just like, oh, I just got some freaking piece of paper from a whore. Gets in the truck and off they go. And it's just like, oh, oh, ah, ow. And maybe it's because every morning I get up and put on my cleanest dress and stand on my porch and wait for that, for my one true love to come that I feel so connected to that narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed 
their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. I normally bring to you guys a, a quibble about... Uh, some matter of historical accuracy from the pedants on the internet. And uh, this movie is, like I think, maybe such an early film that the pedants haven't uh, taken much interest in it. Even the Rosalini pedants? There is one goof on the uh, on the IMDb goose page, and it's just about like the fact that they used a spotlight to enhance the lighter being lit in the, yeah, in the first... Yeah, that was cool. Which is like, okay... <laughs> like who cares <laughs> yeah, good eye dorks <laughs> uh, I, th- I I made up my own little pet entry it's more just me pointing out something about the way old films were made all the crossfades in this film there's like a jump when the film is about to fade between one shot and another and uh, I thought uh, it'd be fun to talk about why that is in, uh, in these old films the way they do that is they when they edit, they create that fade in a post-production process, but that becomes its own film strip that they then have to tape back into the, the preceding and post-seeding shot. What? Really? Yeah. So that's why that, like, you can always see a, a fade is about to start because there's literally like a strip of tape that goes across two frames, uh, as you, as you roll into that. Huh. <laughs> that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Hey, Ben, uh, something that I had noticed about the stabilization of the film is that uh, if you took a look at the left and right hand side of the frame as you watched it, there were times when you could see that move. Yeah. Because they were uh, in, I guess, Criterion mastering the film for re-release. They stabilized parts of it to make it less, less jerky. And so, like, the, the movement of the film in the gate was compensated for by moving the frame itself. Yeah. There are really beat-up parts of this film, and I think that this yeah. film was lost for a long time. It was known... If only we had that seventh episode. I think the whole <laughs> thing would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. It's a... Uh... It all ties together in the seventh episode. Um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, like, this is, like, presumed to be the last copy that was found and digitized in HD, but... It's beat up, and there's there's there are parts of it that are more beat up than others, and uh, it's you know snatched from the jaws of history. Yeah, there are a couple it, of crucial moments. the The most crucial one being in the first episode when the when the soldier is sniped by the Germans. Yeah, there's like four seconds of film that's gone, and so you get this like. Zip, and and you go what, what 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 just happened and 
and you're left to kind of like piece together that he was shot it's not really on it's not really on film yeah and you like you picture the uh the priest watching watching the film in the in the cinema paradiso ringing the bell to let uh <laughs> to let the projectionist know to cut out the the violent part <laughs> <laughs> right that could have been that that was the all the violence in the sex got got snipped uh, real early in the production that's good head cannon speaking of violence and and sex like the there's like a crassness to the way especially the german characters speak like they're swearing and they like they like you know they're talking about the the girl's boobs in the first episode like i was really surprised by that in a film this old because i guess i'm just so used to haze code american films where everybody is like super spick and span and and uh squeaky clean the germans like making crude comments about the body of of carmela was like oh wow like that's probably you know <laughs> Like this is this is a film being made in the time that it depicts, and it seems more accurate than your your average Hayes Code World War II film. Yeah, we hadn't arrived yet at a place where the German army guys would be a trope uh, and would behave in character. I felt like everybody in the movie was treated fairly humanely in terms of their own representation. Like yeah. the, the Germans were obviously like bad guys, but they were given their human moment. I mean, the 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 German in the at the end of the last vignette definitely had you know like the the hardened Nazi right the blonde tropes. hair and the crazy yeah. uh, like, like we we're going to make a civilization that will last a thousand years, but we have to clear out everything that happened before that. And that must have really been ironic in theaters in 1947 that may be one of the first representations of it post-war because movies made during the war already had the caricature of like the ideological nazi but that kid just must i mean he just is so pathetic right it's you know they they are victorious over the americans and british in that final scene but they their victory is pyrrhic and lasts only a few more moments you know that kid is he found his death in that same swamp, probably. This is, I think, maybe even still extant between American culture and Italian culture. But the sort of physicality, uh, the way that they grapple with each other when they're interacting, having any kind of conversation, when they're having a disagreement, when they're just throughout the film, they're always like grabbing each other by the arm. There, there are these moments where you feel like to our eye now, you know, a man would reach out and grab a woman very forcefully and it would seem like an act of kind of like a, like a, like an act that was prefacing some sort of sexual violence. Right. And then she would just like with the same sort of, uh, physicality, just brush his hand away with contempt, like meh, but not like take your hands off me but more like Bleh, you're a worm and 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 this and similar kind of grabbing uh from women to men and men grabbing each other and it's a, it's a thing that we don't do and and you don't see in films very much that kind of just like we're just tussling all the time every interaction is a 
is a tussle that involves some sort of physical uh, connection or clash. I think it's a more confrontational culture than ours. That's the cliche. But of course, when you're in when you're in other countries, you recognize that there are different mores. Yeah. I mean, this is why I'm so attracted to English culture is like every, everybody is as embarrassed as I am about everything. <laughs> yeah. Riding the tube in London and somehow 800 people can be in a car and, and miraculously no one's touching even the hem of one another's garments. Yeah. It's very different from this. It's amazing. <laughs> but but it's, a, I think, a great thing about the fact that we're watching foreign films on this show, because if there were a movie made today starring Brad Pitt about the American invasion of Italy. Right. Um, that <laughs> David would be, O. Russell directing Brad Pitt in the the Paisan reboot. Yeah. It's a Paisan. darker, it's a darker, grittier Paisan. Except it's called Frendo now. <laughs> but like, that's a small detail that would be left out. Hollywood would not make a movie where people were, were, uh, that kind of rough and tumble with one another because it, it reads differently to us. Right. And, and, and that felt that physicality felt like a character in the movie to me, like in the, in the fourth episode in Florence, which was also hard for me to understand because there's an awful lot of exposition in it. The American nurse that speaks fluent Italian is just explaining what she wants and needs to people over and over. Right. And then there's a lot of running and there's running and there's explaining. And I was just like, what is this about? But the shots, these incredible shots of of like ruined Florence and these two running over rooftops and stuff is just so beautiful it's so incredible yeah it's really I mean like it's visually probably the prettiest of of the vignettes and then story-wise like one of the most useless <laughs> like it's hey I want to like go back and see what's up with that painter I used to date oh now he's a resistance leader now he's dead <laughs> Yeah, I think the whole point of the fourth episode was just to show us Florence in ruins. Yeah. And and, and I think also it's very imp- it was very important to the Italians that the story of the partisans and the resistance be entered into the history books. And this is true of a lot of countries in Europe, in France, in Holland. When you go there now, they really want you to know about yeah, there's brass plaques on every other corner in Paris telling you about what what resistance fighter killed what Nazi officer there. The freedom fighters are are such a big part of the narrative because nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, my p- parents were collaborators in Vichy, France. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, you know, my folks, you know, when Mussolini was in power, they were a fascist. And then when the Americans came, they waved a little American flag like we just go along to get along. Yeah. You know, there are very few stories in occupied Europe of a nation actually standing up to the Germans as uh, are many fewer than there are of nations just sort of laying down and showing their soft white underbellies. Right. So here's a movie that's made like in the immediate aftermath. And it's important, I think to Rosalini to have some valiant partisans fighting in the street, you know, as though Florence was being liberated by these, a band of 25 dudes 
There's an 25 Amer- dudes in suit jackets with black socks over their heads. Yeah, there, there's an American army like a mile down the road here, dudes. You could probably just <laughs> take a break. And What's Rossellini saying by making only those from Florence as as the ones who are, are well-dressed and, you know, in comparison, better taken care of than than the rest of the countrymen that he depicts. Like, I'm, I'm positive that there are messages that he's sending about th- their relative status among the rest of the Roman cities that I'm, uh, that I'm ignorant of. Like, what do you know of the rivalries between Italian cities that we've seen? Like, do, do those from Florence dislike those from Rome who dislike those from Naples? Is that, was that a thing post-war? No. Italy was only unified in the late 19th century. Before that, it was a, it was a constellation of states. You know, you had mm-hmm. Naples and Sicily and San Marco and Milan, and they were all independent little duchies and fiefdoms. So Giuseppe Garibaldi, and that's why you see even even in uh, even in like the hilarious American mafia pick where they're all Sicilians. It's not like you could just be a guy from Naples and come waltzing in and be like, I want to be in the mafia too. Yeah, like there's a real Northern Italy versus Southern Italy antipathy being portrayed in a lot of films. Come again? But yeah, there is. And and that's true from city to city, right? I mean, Naples is a, is a seaport and, you know, and Florence is this mountain town full of all the great art. And that's where... Michelangelo is and that's where you know the Uffizi gallery and the Duomo and the Ponte Vecchio I mean they just they're just so Florence is refined and Milan is modern but also chic Rome is cosmopolitan and bustling do you feel like the audience in 46 though is seeing this film and going well Rossellini's making a point about the relative beauty of Florence and that Naples is a shithole but in comparison, like, is that part of the message here? I think it was, I, I think probably that was so encoded. Like, Rossellini's a Roman guy, born in Rome. Um, he's got that, uh, he's got that big mohawk on his helmet, you can tell. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he and, and the thing is, when Rossellini crosses the Rubicon, he's at war with Rome. He's a Adam, Adam loved that dumb joke. I can he he's a quiet laugher, but I could tell he really liked it. <laughs> you could hear him snorting in the background. <laughs> I think all of that is. I think it's much probably more the case that that he's conveying the actual different experiences of these places because Florence is a big city, but it's not like if you're going to invade a country and if you're going to defend a country, a lot of action is going to happen at the seaports. You know, you're going to invade via the ocean and you're going to there are roads that you're going to take and so forth. And Florence is in the center, but it's also not you could you could just go around Florence if you wanted to. And so their experience of the war is going to be a lot different that, you know, it's not like an industrial. It's not like Milan where you would want to bomb it from the air. The center of the town is just a bunch of art galleries and like roller skating rinks or whatever. I mean, and it probably always was. So yeah, I bet it, I bet it was more unconscious. 
I'm really excited to read your Rick Steve style <laughs> book about tourism in Italy that that makes the roller rink comparison. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> If you have three days, you're really going to want to visit the roller rinks. The roller rinks of Florence. Firenze. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, by the end of that episode, it was not clear. My Italian was not quick enough to pick up that she was going to visit her boyfriend. Yeah, like she she dated a a painter in Florence and then she like wound up on the other other side of things and was working as a nurse and then she... She hears that the all the bridges have been bombed, so she wants to go check on this guy. And in in going, she finds out that he's become the leader of a partisan cell. And then the further she gets, she finds out he also died. Blah blah blah. The the little guy with the with his arm in a sling and his double breasted jacket that leads her through the whole city. I thought he was a fascinating character. Yeah. Oh, and the interesting thing, though, thing that was exciting was they went through a thing called the Vasari Corridor, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a shot in the movie where they're like running down a long hallway that has windows on one side, and it's like, oh, cool, that's an actual thing in Florence that has a. This this is a thing that uh, we talk about, like billionaires being bad now and doing terrible things, but in in the distant past, uh, rich people in Europe did this more than once. I've been to more than one of these where the the royal duke wanted to go from his house to his office or to the church or both and didn't want to be down on the street and so built pa- a corridor up in the air basically that went along the side of the buildings turned the corner down the block then over here then a little bridge over to this building and so that they could walk the two miles to work and not ever have to touch touch the ground he invented minneapolis yeah it's fuck you beat me to the (laughs) punchline so good that's exactly right and so this thing is if you look at the ponte vecchio which is the famous bridge across the arno in florence the one it's the bridge that has all the houses built on it the top level is this series of just like square windows and that is this Vasari corridor continuing across the Ponte Vecchio to the other side. Um, so it was a cool little moment where you're like, oh, look at that. That shot also really reminded me of some scenes in uh, Enemy at the Gates where they're like running running down a hallway and like ducking under each window. Oh, right. To avoid the snipers. Yeah. And then there was the hand jab scene. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not accessible. You can't as a tourist go to Florence and like walk the Vasari corridor from one side to the other. I don't go anywhere as a tourist. I go as a citizen of the world. That's right. You are of course citizen of the world, (laughs) but, uh, but it's part of the one side of it is part of the Uffizi uh, gallery now. So there is a portion of it that you can, that you can visit. Cool. (laughs) Should we talk about the last couple of, of uh, chapters in this? Weird yeah. book that we read. Well, the elephant in the room is the fifth episode, right? <laughs> the uh, the the monks who just are fretting positively beside themselves that they've allowed a Protestant and a Jew into their midst. That's that episode started off in a way that I thought was kind of maybe the corniest representation of an American. Mm-hmm. Here come these three ministers into this monastery. 
and the Italians in the monastery are all very quiet and the the monsignor is a younger monk and they're you know thoughtful and obviously very wise and these three Americans are like at least two of them are just boobs they're like oh you know they're <laughs> like, fat first of all and they're like look do you at want this. Any of this Jack Daniels and and Nestle's chocolates yeah it's yeah. it's real hamburger hamburger bang bang it is yeah the, the guy's like reaching into his bag like hey look at this I got a condom do you want to you know, pass them out and the monks are just like <laughs> the prostitutes in this country are very dirty <laughs> yeah. the monks are like oh thank you you know they're being very patient and they're doing their a monastic thing and the Americans are just sort of like big big elbows and big shoulders and then the one the the sort of the big clownish one uh oh well the monk says like why did your two friends not what was it why did they not why they didn't did, they th- pray oh there was something they didn't take communion or they didn't cross themselves or oh they didn't they didn't do some catholic thing some catholic signifier yeah, <laughs> they weren't Catholicism signaling. Right. That kid walked by and you didn't even grope him. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then the, and the, the fuck big... is wrong with you guys? <laughs> yeah. Hey, are you Catholics or what? Does a bear shit in the woods? Uh, but the, the main captain, and they're all three captains, the Americans, the big, the big kind of uh, uh, ruddy one says... Oh, well, I'm the only one of us that's Roman Catholic. The other guy's a Protestant and the other guy's a Jew. And all of a sudden, the whole thing flips on its head. Yeah, like suddenly this generosity that they've extended to like letting these guys stay there is like, oh, really regret that. Uh." (laughs) Well, they're so shocked and, and partly shocked because they've never met either a Protestant or a Jew in their whole lives. Yeah, and they're like, why haven't you convinced them to convert? What's wrong with you? Right. Convert to the one true religion. But then you see that American hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang thing in a completely different light. What had formerly been like, oh, here they are, the gross Americans who don't understand the culture and they're just throwing chocolate bars around are now suddenly like, oh, these three American servicemen represent three of the world's faiths and they are friends and travel happily together and wear the same uniform and are ambassadors of a kind of religious freedom and American exceptionalism that we forget about sometimes and they're encountering this incredibly closed and bigoted and like centuries old system and there's just there there's absolutely no way that the two sides can ever can ever come to any kind of arrangement right the it's like they want that jew out of there as fast as they can get him out and then that final scene which i i didn't understand the words but it dawned on me or like at the very end just heard the enough that i was like oh shit they're not eating they're not eating because either they i mean so i i thought it was that they wouldn't eat with a protestant and a jew and I went and read about it, and I guess the actual dialogue is that they were fasting. They were going to fast through this meal in supplication to the Lord so that he might show this Protestant and Jew the true word of the book. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, fuck. 
they were playing that whole more pious than thou game. Yeah, but but to see that communicated by an Italian director, that's some of that kind of um, like um, love for America that was present until very recently in other countries <laughs> where it's like, wow, America, look, they're they're gross. Like, yes, they're gross. They're fat and they're loud and they put their cigarettes out on the carpet. But look, they have backpacks full of canned goods and they can get along you know, among different religions. You can be, yeah. a, you can be friends with the Jew and it's, and the next day or that night, they're going to walk out of that monastery and just be like, whoa, that was weird, right? High five. <laughs> like, let's get back to base. And those monks are going to be sitting there reckoning with that for, for 20 years. They're still going to be uh, gossiping about it in their little cells for the rest of their lives. Yeah. John, I'd be with you on, on like the idea of Rossellini stepping out and portraying, uh, the Roman monks that way if Captain Martin hadn't thanked them for the moving lesson that they gave them at the very end. Like, he really appears to take it to heart. Like, their their relative piousness toward each other. And, like, that was the thing that I thought took the... Whatever way Rossellini was trying to step out of his lane here, I thought that moved him back into the lane. Interesting. I, I missed that last... Are you sure it just wasn't politeness see i read it i read it as a very like is like a very diplomatic statement but like nonetheless he's gonna sit back down and they're gonna start chowing down you know he's he's like yeah he's saying he's saying like you guys are obviously like deeply convicted of your beliefs and that's something i admire about you but there's a bowl of soup in front of me and i'm gonna i'm gonna eat it (laughs) and so are my friends yeah (laughs) right they didn't refuse to serve the american chaplains they just didn't eat while they were there. I mean, it like it, it also is a real head faint on that issue because the, you know, the, they show up and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you guys can stay here and eat dinner with us. And then he goes down to the, down to the guy that works in the kitchen and it's like, what can we make them? And he's like, well, we have a little bit of broccoli, but not really enough for a bunch of extra people. Right. And uh, he's like, divine providence will surely, you know, deliver, us a way to feed these people and then sure enough like the the townspeople come up with an offering and the americans are in possession of a lot of food and and it 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 does sort of seem like the film is saying like look at this miracle that happened because of like these faithful people being faithful well but also without subtitles that scene where the food is being cooked in the kitchen and the and the monks keep coming and kind of smelling it and being like, oh, my God, that's so good. Oh, my God. Like, they're all really psyched to have this meal. I'm sure to learn that instead they're going to fast tonight was a real kick in the solar plexus. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so complicated and particularly complicated as a film because we're shown that the Monsignor... We're, we're meant to like him. Right. There are a lot of the monks that seem like little perverts or weasels, but he seems really steady and really deliberate. And so, yeah, the, his, he's, in a way, I felt like throughout the whole episode, he was going to be meant to be a, a forward-thinking young monk surrounded by these old, stuck-in-the-mud monks. <laughs> but then he takes this. You don't want to be one of those stuck in the mud monks. You want to be a cool monk. I've been stuck in the mud with a monk. 
<laughs> I wouldn't for any amount of money I wouldn't go back. <laughs> <laughs> This is an interesting food movie, isn't it? Yeah. Like the way they use food to portray either wealth or poverty or uh, generosity or a way someone accepts a gift. Like they, that seems to be a thread that runs throughout. That may be one of the only threads that, that connects all the episodes. Food? Yeah. And the, the wealth of food that the Americans seem to have compared to the Italians. Right. and I mean, I think that was a major factor in... World War II, both during the war and immediately post-war. I mean, you think about fires on the plane, mm-hmm. just the relationship that the Japanese had to the American abundance of food, which they never even saw. Yeah, just the rumor of food. Yeah, they just knew it because they were because they were the ones that the Americans they saw weren't visibly starving. They're like, those guys probably think they have it bad, but they're stealing sheet cakes from the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> But sure, can you imagine being someone in a uh, someone who hasn't eaten a good meal in a year, and an American comes through and throws you a can of tomato paste, and you're just like, "Who are these gods?" <laughs> this might not go anywhere, but uh, do you guys have a food memory of the weirdest thing you've eaten out of just abject hunger? On a backpacking trip one time, my friend and I were. Uh, up up at a very high altitude and we got into camp like well after dark so we were just like we were having like altitude sickness issues but also just like we were exhausted from you know 15 miles of hiking up like thousands and thousands of feet of elevation and uh we cooked ourselves macaroni and cheese with uh we we thought it would be fun to mix wasabi peas into it oh god and uh i don't know why we thought that they the peas would like reconstitute and become an acceptable texture but they were just these like hard balls in in among the macaroni and cheese so so it was like you felt like your teeth were shattering while you were eating this like otherwise mushy food and boy it uh it sucked but it was like it was necessary (laughs) Mac and cheese is usually a good vehicle for other foods. Yeah, yeah, but right. not as a mixing foods. Yeah. yeah, you want to cut up a hot dog in your mac and cheese. That's yeah. the way to go. You don't want to put pretzels in it. No. <laughs> uh, what was your What was the question? Can you phrase it again, Adam? Uh, what is the most exotic thing you've eaten out of just ravenous hunger or or desperation? Not that our desperation for food compares in any way to like what wartime would be but that seems to be like a thing that you see depicted here several times in this film uh when i was uh i went to outward bound in 1982 i guess in the boundary waters of minnesota and i was in a group uh i mean other groups of kids were like nice it was like they were at camp together but they put all the big kids that had been sent there by juvenile hall together into one group and my parents characterized my trip there as a um, disciplinary action or i was you know sent there not as a camper but as a truant (laughs) and so and i was i was big for my age so even though i was 13 i was put in this this group of 10 kids that were all 16 and 
were there by court order. And it was an awful, awful, awful several weeks uh, because these guys were violent criminals and bullies and and, uh, creeps. And I was not prepared to defend myself physically or emotionally. And one of the things that happened when we were out in the wilderness was that some of these characters broke into our backpacks full of food and just ate all the good food. And we were 14 days out and it was 14 days back or something. It was like we were it was a we had a long way to go for you guys to have eaten all the good food. <laughs> that was not very smart on your part. As a demonstration of foresight, big fail. Big fail. <laughs> and the and we were with two out, outward bound guide type people who were who who were adults but now I realize they were 22 and 24 and they were completely incapable of handling this group you know they were just like they were bullied themselves and they had outdoor leadership skills but they had zero human management skills and so this group of 16 year olds like lord of the flies the whole situation and the two outward leadership adults kept trying to use their techniques like okay well if you guys don't learn to tie a knot then i guess we're gonna sleep in the rain and everybody (laughs) would just sit down in the rain and just fucking just sit there fucking glaring it's like well shit i guess we're sleeping in the rain now okay well if you guys don't learn to fucking pop popcorn then i guess we're all gonna eat bugs and it's just like people just eating bugs anyway the last five days of this outward bound trip the only thing left to eat in our backpacks was a giant bag of brown sugar (laughs) and a slightly smaller plastic bag full of rancid butter and we would dig our hands in the butter and get a handful of butter and then dip it in the brown sugar and at first it was like cookie dough yeah it was like this is fucking great brown sugar and butter there's the only two things you need but let me offer you this (laughs) that after four days of eating only rancid butter and brown sugar you would oh oh and blueberries i could forage for blueberries as we walked along the trail so blueberries, b- butter, and brown sugar. You can only imagine what going to the bathroom was like. And that was what <laughs> every minute was like. So, boy, when I got back to civil, this is quite a digression. I'm sorry to have taken us on it. This is great. But, uh, but yeah, when I got back to civilization, uh, the, I, whew, did I want a sandwich? I can't relate to wanting a sandwich, John, but that's a pretty harrowing story. Oh, right. You hate sandwiches. Yeah. That's so weird. Nothing has ever made, like, I've I've done a lot of things in my life to make Adam's wife hate me. Nothing has made her revile me more than my reveal that I don't like sandwiches that much. So crazy. I I would hate you, too, if I didn't understand what a vulnerable (laughs) little angel you are. Uh, Adam, you were about to tell us your food story. Oh, it's not nearly as exotic as either of yours, but uh, I think you would be surprised to know by looking at me that uh, I was sick for a very long time when I was a young person, oh. and I was hospitalized for 
close to a month. Ooh. And in that time, I couldn't eat at all. I was fed uh, intravenously. This is uh, this is like eighth grade. You you, you started off just by high. saying that your story wasn't as dramatic as ours, and now you're literally in no, a my, hospital my, bed being <laughs> intravenously fed. <laughs> I wasn't able to eat food for like six weeks and, and I was so like taste hungry by the end of it that all I wanted to do was eat Arby's roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> and so as soon as I could eat solid food again, I ravenously ate like five for five Arby's roast beef sandwiches. Oh. <laughs> that was as like taste hunger is different, I think, than like nutritional hunger or whatever. But that was... That was like the moment to me where I felt like the most of this kind of hunger. And uh, and for that reason, the Arby's roast beef sandwich has always held a special place in my heart. I can't tell you why my body needed that <laughs> form of nourishment by the end of that ordeal. But yeah, that was my weird ravenous food. Can you imagine uh, what would happen if you gave Pascal five Arby's roast beef sandwiches? He would eat them and then he would immediately be six feet tall. I would feel bad ending the show without talking about the last little vignette in this film. This is about like American OSS guys operating behind enemy lines with Italian partisans. John, were the partisans like, and were, were they a thing when Mussolini rose to power or were they kind of like, how? When, what is the history of that? Yeah, there was always a resistance to Mussolini. Um, it was political in a way that, like in Germany, you know, after Hitler came to power, they just suppressed all political opposition. It wasn't like there was a competing political party. But, you know, in Italy before the war, I mean, when you, uh, I, I don't know how many governments Italy has had since the war now, but it's more than 20 there's a lot of turnover. Um, right. It's a real uh, roller rink of governments. Yeah. So there were there were the fascist government, but there were anti-fascists and they were uh, communists and anarchists and socialists, but also Republicans. And We've been just, accused of being all of these things. Yeah, that's right. There were like Catholic anti-fascists and there were you know like like revolutionary socialists and there were monarchists that wanted a king so there were so many people in italy that were already like wrestling with each other and wrestling with mussolini and you know when and so mussolini actually was deposed and escaped and then was returned and propped up uh, a long time before he was eventually killed, hung in the streets. I mean, there was a whole period where he was um, legitimately chased out. You know, the, I, I kind of spoke about the partisans in Italy like they were inconsequential, and I should rephrase that. They were a, a factor, you know, throughout the whole war. Well, this, uh, this was like maybe the vignette that was hardest for me to understand because I... I guess I missed initially that they were behind enemy lines, so I couldn't figure out like why the Germans were so. I mean, this is like the fur the furthest north setting in the movie, and so I guess that makes sense. Like they they haven't quite quite cleared Italy of its Nazi problem yet, but it seems like they're just kind of like 
boating around and and harassing the Germans. It doesn't seem like they have like an actual objective even. This episode had uh, had the most harrowing image, though. The crying toddler walking among the dead bodies yeah. with that dog. And that was a reprisal killing. It's confusing because the Americans invaded and Italy surrendered. Italy made a truce with America. They signed an armistice. They were like, we give up. We're on your side now. Or like Italy was out of the war, but Italy was still full of Germans who were like, we're not out of the war. So there wasn't an Italian army anymore. Americans weren't fighting Italians. They were fighting Germans who were at that point an occupying army. So there were all these behind the the lines situations. Every you know, everywhere there was a German, there was somebody behind the lines. This area that this last thing is set is like this an enormous sort of marshy region that's really actually close to Venice where the ocean and the ground are just trading places all the time. But what its strategic importance was, I could not figure out. And again, I, I, I couldn't tell what the Italians were saying, but these guys, this, this, oh, these OSS guys were like just running around in the grass. There's not anything there. They weren't guarding anything. They weren't. Yeah, like they, they, they blow doing? up that ocean mine to distract a German guard tower so that they can go get the body of a partisan. And it's like, why, like why use this huge explosion to distract for that? Like what, what's the point? Well, and what was that guard tower? Now that you mention it, yeah, <laughs> like, like just out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, what was that? Now I didn't even think about that until now. What the fuck was that guard tower doing? Well, you rescue some British airmen come down. Yeah, I I couldn't figure it out, and and uh, and there was a lot of running around, and it didn't seem, it didn't seem very OSS in a way. Right. Like, yeah, what's your what's your plan? Are you blowing up a dam or what? They should have had some dog poop bombs. Yeah, blow up a dam or don't. <laughs> but don't just like swamp around in it. I mean, they were interesting boats and and that style of of the of those oar locks where yeah like it, it seems like the hardest way to row a boat but also yeah. you get to like row it where you're looking forward and not with your back to the bow of the ship the boat don't at me <laughs> <laughs> i mean i feel like i'm gonna get added by so many people like like italian resistance splaining me <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry i have it's very complicated to describe and i'm i, I don't have all my all my ducks in a row on it there's so much i mean trying to describe italian politics has thwarted me my whole life well i am saddened and dismayed by that john <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> uh yeah so that last there that that was the most harrowing moment adam the one you're describing and also you get that scene where the officers are separated from the the foreign officers are separated from the italians and the italian partisans are chained up in the dirt and executed and the american and british officers are given glasses of whiskey and it's a it's a uh, gross and hard to parse last scene it feels like it's got kind of the same basic message as fury which is like why all this senseless brutality when it's almost over anyways yeah and that these guys get stones and 
and the lake while you guys get the whiskey because these guys have this label and you guys don't. Like the essential humanity of them was stripped away in favor of of their national humanity that made it far more terrible to see because it was coupled with the idea of the war being so close to being over. Like, why do it except for its inherent cruelty? When you think about, I was thinking about this the other day, when you think about the wars in which once it was evident you were going to lose, the other side just like gave up, raised the flag and was like, we surrender. You know, at the end of World War One, it's not a stretch to say that the Germans were in just as good a, a uh, position as the French and British, better, maybe. And it was just the fact that the Americans had arrived and the Americans had so many more resources that the German army kind of took a, like, a logical course and said, you know what, okay, we surrender. But when they surrendered, they were still in Belgium, you know? They're, like, no foreign army ever touched German soil during World War I. They surrendered while still holding all the land that they had taken at the, at the start. So they surrendered sort of like gentlemen, you know, we give up. Okay. Let, you know, let's, let's put this behind us. And then they got screwed in the treaties that followed and blamed for everything and, you know, stripped of their industrial capacity. And I mean, they were, they were brutalized, right? So the, during world war two, there had to be a sense that, you know, if you surrender, they're just going to give it to you anyway. So you might as well just fight to the death. It's the only thing that can explain. I mean, once the Allies had landed at D-Day and had established that beachhead and started working forward and the Russians were coming from the other direction, there was nobody in Germany that thought they had a chance. But they fought for another fucking year, almost. And it all so futile. Just so futile. World War I just taught them the wrong lesson about, about giving up. It's like they, uh, they came back and found their buddy dead and they assumed that the... Uh that the Italians did it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they got the wrong lesson. It's the wrong tone. After having talked about it, I like it more than I did immediately after seeing it. This is the part of the podcast where we rate the film. I think it might have been easier to rate each individual episode. And I don't get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> But I also, like, I'm twisting myself into knots over the idea of, like, at the beginning of the episode, I I came out as not liking the movie. I think I was fairly clear on my reasons why. But there's this thing about a war film's inherent usefulness or importance that I think grounds any film in the genre, like... The, when, the, when the Criterion logo comes up on screen, it is a seal of quality. These films are fucking great. They're like unimpeachably great. But that's a different sort of greatness than the rating system I want to give these things. Like I, if I'm truly going to give ratings about how I feel about a movie, like I think part of that system needs to include how enjoyable it is to watch yeah like requiem for a dream is a great movie but i'll watch ferris bueller 10 times out of 10 over that right and it's not like i'm into this podcast project to see only movies that i like or to only see movies that 
are enjoyable to see because uh, Apocalypse Now is not enjoyable to see, but I really like that movie. So it's hard to really articulate the the conflicts I have about like giving a bad rating to what is supposed to be a good movie. But in this film, getting back to the rating system I will ascribe for it, uh, I mentioned like the through line of food throughout. One of the food items really perked up my ears. It was uh, in, in the fifth episode. They're in the Roman monastery. They've raided the larder and uh, they've got canned eggs. <laughs> canned eggs is one of the foods that they have available to them. And I had never heard of a canned egg before. One thing Ben knows about me is that uh, anytime we see deviled eggs on a menu anywhere, I will always get them. It's one of my strongest food rules. Always get the deviled eggs. I would not in a million years eat these canned eggs, though. (laughs) I know and understand that Rossellini is great. I can appreciate the Paisan as a great example of neorealism, but the... Fragmentations of the stories made it feel like I could not fully enjoy the movie in the way I wanted to. Because of that, uh, for Paisan, I award one can of eggs. Wow, one can of eggs. One can of eggs. Uh, I'm going to give it two and a half cans of eggs. Because I felt like while overall uh, it was kind of an eat your peas kind of film, um, I felt like... at least a couple of the vignettes did really grab me. And I, I do like a movie where you can rest assured that something different will come along if you don't like this part. And, uh, you know, like it also really surprised me. Like I, I hadn't read much about it going in and didn't realize that it was this episodic storytelling uh, technique. So when when we got to the, the castle with G.I. Joe and... And the girl, like, I was like, this is going to be a movie with a soldier and a girl sitting in a castle the entire time? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was terrified. I G.I. Jersey. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, I, I was pleasantly surprised after that. And, um, you know, seeing Italy depicted in this in this time, like, like literally shot in, I think, 45 and... 46 like it is fucking amazing to see that so two and a half cans of eggs i concur uh ben i feel like this is an example of a movie that i want people to watch i'm glad i watched it obviously it gave us a lot of food for thought um some of these vignettes if you'd asked me just uh to give like a half a second explanation of them i would have felt like meh uh, whatever but but as we talked about them and thought about them the movie showed us a lot and took us a lot of different places and did leave a lot f- for us to process so i want people to watch and i want i don't want this podcast to be like a take your medicine style podcast no <laughs> right there's a lot uh, uh, that's enjoyable about it and i mean i recommend that you watch it without subtitles just because it's very immersive but as a film, it does not succeed in terms of, I guess, what I think of as like what a movie does. Yeah, it's so it's so weird because it's like it's set a new standard when it came out. But we're so far beyond that standard now that it's it is very difficult to watch now. 
Yeah, it feels like if you had watched each one of these episodes one a day in a in like a civics class, <laughs> that that was at least as I mean that that would have been at least as good a way to watch it as sitting down and with a bowl of popcorn and saying like I'm going to watch this movie, and and it almost did feel like that type of thing, like something that students should watch, and and after every episode, stop and talk about it. Because there wasn't that that uh, other than like the overarching this all happened in Italy between 1943 and 1945, there wasn't any other galvanizing principle or message. So, yeah, two and a half cans of eggs. I agree with you, John. Like people should see the film, and my not liking it, I hope, is not does not dissuade anyone from doing so. Like that's. Part of the conflict, I feel, about giving it that kind of rating. Should we talk about who our guys are? Who's your guy, Ben? So in the, in the fourth uh, vignette, after they've gone down the Vasari corridor, they, they pop out and they're kind of up on the rooftops and they encounter this binocular and map <laughs> dad who's just, like, who's just like a crotchety old man who's like following the progress of the battle from his roof and... I fucking loved that guy. Just like <laughs> just an old man who wants to know how the battle's going and is keeping track of it on his map. You're into map daddies, Ben. Lawn chair on the roof, map daddy. <laughs> Ma- map daddy uh, really delighted me. Like that is a type of dad that exists all over the world. And uh, it was nice to see him <laughs> in this context. Call sign map daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you, Adam? Did you have a guy? Uh, my guy comes out of the fifth episode, the monastery episode, and uh, it's for one line of dialogue. Uh, the Jewish chaplain uh, has just been rendered indignant over being judged over being uh, the the Jew in the group. He says, how can they judge us in life if they don't know what it's all about? Sort of characterizing the idea of these isolationist people rendering any judgment on them for how they live their lives. I thought really cuts to the core of why I get so upset every time there's a proselytizer outside of a concert or a sporting event with a megaphone. Like it's just, it's just deeply upsetting to be judged by someone who doesn't know you. And I thought that was such an efficient and cutting way to put that thought that uh, for that reason, he's my guy. Yeah, the rabbi. What about you? You're the rabbi John? of this podcast, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi, am. <laughs> well done. Nice. That's great. <laughs> that, <laughs> you're welcome in any synagogue in the country. Lahayim. <laughs> <laughs> Adam was born without the part of the mouth that generates phlegm. <laughs> he can't even make the sound. <laughs> I can't make that sound and I can't make that like oozy sound that kids make on yeah. the playground. If you actually listen back that. to the podcast, Adam has never said a word that has the, the letters CH in it. That's right. <laughs> in, in his entire history on Mike. It's like a blood or a crip not being able to say uh, C or B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're bull bomb and bull active. Uh, <laughs> well, mazel tav. Uh, <laughs> uh, my guy also happened in the fourth episode. 
it's two guys really, but uh, but I, I can pick one of them. Um, when our heroine and her hero uh, run up on the side of the hill, they meet two British officers who are sitting there watching what's going on in Florence through an, another pair of binoculars. And it's like this classic exchange where the Italian guy's like, let, let me see your binoculars. Hey, 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 kid, let me hold your wallet. And the British officers are like, man, here you are. <laughs> and he looks and, and they don't ask him who he is or what he's doing. or they, they, He obviously crossed through some enemy lines, but we don't know where that what happened. The Italian guy says, what are you doing sitting up here? Like the Germans have left the town. And the British officer says, well, that's what we're trying to, to figure out. Like, how would you know? <laughs> and, and it's just so like beautiful. They're just these young guys with these little British mustaches. And they're just up there in that full sort of like wrapped, cloaked in the glory of the dying British Empire. <laughs> and and everywhere they go, it is the British Empire. You know, you just have that feeling of like, this isn't even, what are you guys even doing here? Shouldn't you be in some other theater of war? Why are you on this hill? But there they are. And it's like, and it, you can just see there's a picnic basket in the in the trunk of their car, like, so it, I, I wait for those moments. So those, those two are my guys. But if I had to pick one of them, I would pick the blonde mustache guy. <laughs> great guy. Great guys. A, a great guys all around. Yeah, everybody had a great guy in this one. Do you guys want to figure out what our next motion picture will be here on the Friendly Fire podcast? Yeah, let's spin that wheel. Yeah, let's say... Uh, one hundred and well, wait. I need to tell you how many you have to pick from here oh, before right. you. We have watched three World War II films in a row now, and that triggers a an event where we have to isolate World War II films in our list, set them to the side. Can't we can't just wallow in World War II for the rest of our lives? That's right. That wasn't the only war. <laughs> That's right. So uh, out of. Uh, we have 86 titles on our 160-something title list that are not World War II films. 86, so, you say? Yeah. So, uh, oh. so pick a pick a number between one and 86. I'm impressed that 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 many are not World War II movies. Yeah. Um, let's say 61. Number 61. This is exciting. It is a uh, 1977 film. About Star Wars, directed by George Lucas. It's Star Wars. Whoa! <laughs> this is a war about a about a rebel band fighting against an enormous empire. Yeah, I have got total podcast whiplash going from <laughs> Paisan to Star Wars. What other show could accomplish this episode to episode? It's impossible. We're the only ones. Wow. Oh, well, it's it's going to be great, especially given that you guys do like a Star Wars podcast. Don't you? <laughs> so you'll, have, you'll know all the characters. Um, this will be the first episode of what John Hodgman called the greatest Jedi-ration. Um, I guess we have a... There is a, a one consideration that we have to make, which is, are we going to watch the reboot version of Star Wars where they add lots of crappy digital effects, or are we going to try and find a 
an addition that would uh, hew more closely to the original theatrical release. Well, I, you know me, I don't like to wade into internet controversy. (laughs) (laughs) Not Star Wars oriented internet controversy. But I do not recognize any version other than the 1977 release. I do not. I refuse to call it episode four. Whoa. A New Hope. God damn it. So we're going to have to go get a VHS and. No, no, no. But this is the thing. We have to find a way for our our fans to watch this with us. Right. So we have to find a version that does not show Alderaan exploding with a whatever special effect. There is no Greedo does not shoot first. I was going to say Han Han doesn't shoot Alderaan. (laughs) Han doesn't shoot Alderaan. Right. There's no jab of the hut uh, foreshadowing. None of that. <laughs> so I don't know how you guys are going to do it, but you have to you have to find it, and, I, and we have to make it public. I think this is your job, John. You need to get you need to get your buddy Marilyn Mann's secret copy. Ooh. Well, but the thing is, everybody has to watch it with us, so it has to be public, yeah. dom- public, publicly available. Is there no way to see the good one? I have the good one on DVD. There was a release that included the original on DVD, but it is a very bad low resolution transfer it is like lower resolution than dvd somehow they had retitled it a new hope but it doesn't have any of the digital stuff in it if we have to watch it with the digital stuff be forewarned listeners that i will be shitting on it hard (laughs) it's not gonna be you're not gonna be like a westworld character where you just don't even you can't even process that that stuff exists I this, why, what do you mean? I don't even see it. What are you This doesn't about? look like anything to me. <laughs> These aren't the special effects I'm looking for. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, Star yeah. Wars. Okay. I, I think that unfortunately the Lucasfilm Corporation has has basically made it impossible to watch oh, the theatrical release. Those villains. Yeah. That, like. Yeah. They lived long enough to become what they set out to destroy. All right. Well, then uh, I look forward to that, gents. For now, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly Fires and Maximum Fun Podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to support Friendly Fire, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate, or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact us on Twitter, use the hashtag Friendly Fire. Ben's there at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John's at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.